How do you preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit? How do you preach a sermon series on something as mysterious, as unhuman, as divine as the Holy Spirit? Now, I may have heard it wrong, but did I think I was getting my mic on? Did Trace or did uh, David mistake? communion with fireworks earlier did he get those switched that you may have in communion been expecting the presence of the holy spirit to come upon us if you were expecting fireworks or something like it that dramatic but yeah how do you i mean we're in this beginner's guide to the holy spirit we're trying to understand what is the spirit and our goal in this series is to be firmly rooted in scripture to allow God's word allows scripture to guide our understanding of it because that's the window God has given us so that we can interpret the other window, which is our experience. But we have to allow scripture to help us understand our experience, not the other way around. And depending on your background, you may not have heard much about the Holy Spirit. You may not know what the Holy Spirit is. You may not be able to actually define it because there are some church traditions that are uncomfortable talking about the Holy Spirit. Kind of like me right now, trying to think, I got to fill the next 25 minutes of content on something that it's hard for me to explain to you. I mean, we, we believe in him, but we don't talk about him very much. It's kind of like me and dieting. Like, I believe in it. (laughs) I believe that it's a thing. I believe I should do it, but I don't like to talk about it very much. Like, we just kind of avoid it the best we can. And people avoid the Holy Spirit for maybe good reason, maybe not. One of the reasons I know is because they have seen and they try to avoid the excess they've seen in churches who spend a lot of time focusing on the Holy Spirit. Right? So... Some churches, maybe you come from a church like this, would claim to be, maybe not overtly claim it, but they would, in a roundabout way, claim to be cessationist, right? They, they believe that the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the working of the Spirit in the world have ceased to exist. And that came upon with the creation of the Scripture, the Holy Word that is given to us. Now, if you're here and you come from the opposite side, so that is a more charismatic church, and I know we actually have people here worshiping with us this morning that do come from a more charismatic background. You may have heard a lot about the Holy Spirit growing up. You may have witnessed the Holy Spirit working in your church, in your life, or at least that's how you would interpret it. And now you have a longing in your heart. You desire to see the Spirit working even more prominently in your life in this church, in your regular worship. Maybe you recognize that some churches have done crazy things and maybe things that aren't well anchored in Scripture, but overall you are desiring and seeking the work of the Spirit. Now here is a warning I want to give with charismatic churches. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in a generality here. Not all charismatic churches are this way. I know a few um, uh, pastors that... that Uh, serve at charismatic churches that are good, faithful men that love scripture and are seeking God's understanding or our understanding of God's word just like we are. But here's the danger. 
is charismatic, extreme charismatic churches can be vulnerable to flow from an overemphasis of experience over scripture. Of what I feel, what I experience, what, I, um, what I'm going through right now, rather than letting scripture guide their experience, experience guides their understanding of scripture. And I have seen and I have heard some wild stories of what that causes people to do. Things like bark like dogs or act like they're drunk, all in the name of the spirit. And many of us, myself, definitely look at it skeptically. What is actually driving that? But here... Here's the thing, the opposite extreme of churches, those who say little and expect little from the Holy Spirit are equally vulnerable to flow from an overemphasis on experience over scripture. Now, you may not have expected me to say that, and that's okay, but it's because it's, it's true. Like, it might be a personal experience of yours or your religious tradition, that you have come to the statement, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit still fill in the blank. I don't believe the Holy Spirit still heals. I don't believe the Holy Spirit still does miracles in the world. I don't believe the Holy Spirit still gives supernatural gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit still uh, moves and speaks frequently and powerfully in the world. Why? Because I have not experience that. The church I worship at or have always worshiped at has never experienced that. And so our goal in this series, my goal this morning is to turn on my clicker, is we want scripture to direct our experience, not the other way around. We want to understand what we experience in the world, our understanding of the Holy Spirit through what Scripture has to say about it. And what we're going to do for the remainder of today is I want to, we're going to kind of keep doing this broad overview of the Holy Spirit. Tracy did a good job of introducing spirit in a theological setting. Now I want to answer in a much more broad way, what does the Holy Spirit do? Like, what is the actual power and importance of the Holy Spirit? And what are dangers that the church faces when it comes to the Spirit? And then for the remainder of our series, over the next two weeks, we're going to get far more practical. So we're talking very abstract, defining stuff in the first half, the second half of the series. Next week, I'm going to talk about how do we, on a daily basis, tap into the power of the Spirit. And then Tracy will close us out looking at the trajectory of if my life is, a, if I'm tapped into the power of spirit, what is the trajectory of my life? What is the trajectory of Christ's church? But today we're going to look at scripture. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit. We're going to look specifically, what did Jesus have to say about the Holy Spirit? Because if you're going to go anywhere, you might as well go to the words of the Messiah, the embodiment of the Spirit. Our first verse we're going to be looking at, it comes from John's Gospel. Now, our growing 20s and 30s young professional group, we are actually studying through the Gospel of John right now. Every Thursday, we get together verse by verse. We are reading through John's Gospel, and then for an hour after that, we play pickleball. It's a blast. If you are a young professional, a young adult, if you're seeking community, if you're seeking understanding and application of Scripture, 
If you're looking for just good people, I encourage you, come join us Thursdays, uh, 6, 6.30 is whenever we start. We're studying through the Gospel of John. And our young professionals, you might maybe not recognize this verse, but we have our reading lens on as we understand Scripture. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I, Jesus, am going to go away. For if I do not go, the helper, which you can substitute the Holy Spirit in there, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I, Jesus, go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. John 16, verse 7. Now I want you to look at those verses one more time. Read them again. Read them in your head. Read them out loud. Whisper. Really lock in what Jesus is saying here. He says, it's to your advantage. It is actually better for you if I leave. He's saying this to his disciples. Now, I try to be honest with scripture. I try to be very honest with you. Almost every time I read this, I think, Jesus, I think you got that one wrong. How could it be better for you to leave and for whatever the Holy Spirit is, this thing I can't understand, why is that better than you? Because I can see you, Jesus. Like, I can walk alongside you. I can watch you heal and teach and minister. You could say my name out loud because you know me so well. And yet, Jesus says, it is better for me to leave. Now, pay attention to who is he saying this to. He's saying this to, at this point in the story, guys who have spent the past couple of years with him who have witnessed some pretty remarkable things. In fact, at this point in the story, this group of guys have been sent out by Jesus. They've been given the power to heal and cast out demons. They're coming back. They're rejoicing. They're excited. They, they've had this power they've never had before. They're doing it in the name of God's kingdom. And then Jesus says, keep going. Keep that energy because I'm going to be gone. I'm leaving and it's going to be better for you. I don't understand it either, but this is what Jesus says. He says something else after he, is after he dies, is crucified, and is resurrected. He's in front of those same group of people, and he tells them something pretty remarkable whenever you read it in its context, of its placement in the story. So this is going to be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, what's happening here, and, and I love this verse. I love this verse because we're actually going to be praying this verse next week over our Antigua team. We're sending 28 people from this church to the island of Antigua. We've been blessing that community there for decades, but this is the largest group this church has ever sent over there. And we're going to be, for a week, families with their kids are going to be serving the people of Antigua, sharing his love and truth. We're going to pray this verse over them. But look at the power that's in this verse. Jesus says this to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, it's powerful alone. But think about where this is in this story. If all the disciples needed 
to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God on earth was to know Christ and to proclaim Christ, they were ready right then and there. They had everything they needed, right? I mean, they had been taught by the very best, Jesus himself. They have walked alongside him. They know how to minister. They've experienced his power. They have watched him die. They've gone through that emotional turmoil. They've watched him be resurrected. Thomas has touched his side. I mean, they have everything they need. But Jesus says, you're not ready yet. What are they missing? What could they possibly still need to be effective? This thing we call the Holy Spirit. According to Jesus, he says, don't go anywhere. Don't talk to anybody. I know you're hyped up. I know you're motivated, but you have to wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then, then and only then will you be ready. So who is this Holy Spirit? That's the question. What does this Holy Spirit do? How does it operate? How am I supposed to think about it? What, how do I access this kind of power and do it in a way that doesn't actually danger my faith? It empowers it. It emboldens it. How do I do it? Well, as a refresher of last week, we're going to look a little bit more at the theology of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit. If you were here last week, this is a reminder of what Tracy talked about. It's going to be a real quick version. Um, and we all need that <laughs> when it comes to this topic, just like keep washing the same information over me. If you're new to, if you're first time here, you weren't here last week, this will catch you up. All right. So we're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about these three persons of God represented throughout scripture. Pop quiz. Where is the first place that we read about the Holy Spirit? All of you are listening. You passed the test. Yeah, Genesis chapter 1. Actually, Genesis chapter 1, in the first two verses of your Bible, you open it up, it'll say this. In the beginning was the Word, or sorry, in the beginning, that's John 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And look at that. And God's Spirit. Everybody say Ruach. Ruach. Now, this is a fun exercise. Put your hand right in front of your face, just like this. Look like a fool for a second and say Ruach. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? Ruach. That's why it's that word, because you can feel the spirit. You can feel the breath. And now this is God's breath. God's Ruach in the world. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit introduced to us in the second verse of the Bible. Now, the word Trinity, where is that in your Bible, pop quiz? It's not there. The word Trinity never appears in your Bible. No Greek version, no Hebrew version, nothing. No, no Trinity, but the revelation, the embodiment, the presence of three embodiments of God is all over Scripture. In fact, Trinity is going to be first defended about 100 plus years after Jesus by Tertullian for the first time, a church father. So we don't get it for another 100 plus years before we get the idea of Trinity, but it is everywhere throughout Scripture. Here, let me give you another example. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he said, you know, 
fill, you know, separate the waters and the lands. And then he made plants and vegetation. Then he made animals. And then it was time to make human. It was time to make things that looked like you. These creatures that would be what? Made in God's image. Made in the image of God, right? This is what it says. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Fun, fun thing, our teenagers just went on a mission camp this past week. We were in Alabama, Mobile, Alabama, uh, working in the community there. 150 kids, we took 10 from our church, and this was their theme, made in the image of God. We got to spend a week worshiping God and serving in his image. It was, it was awesome. And in that image that we're all made, what is it? Did you notice it? Did you notice the, the plurality language? God doesn't say... I'm going to make humans in my image. I will make them. What does he say? Let us. Let us. And that is plural in Hebrew. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. There's a plurality. Dietrich Bonhoeffer will say there is a community built inside God. Which, if you are made in his image... We just did the great, the grand experiment of isolation with COVID-19, and you recognize that it's embedded in you too, the desire and the need for community. Made in his image. There is plurality here. We see the Trinity, and there's examples all over scripture. I'll give you one last one. John's gospel, we just talked about it. At the very beginning, Jesus is baptized so you have the human version of God, Jesus, baptized in the water. You have the spirit of God in the version of a dove coming down and abiding. It's that word to rest, to abide with Jesus. And then you have God the Father speaking out, behold my son who I am well pleased. Three embodiments of God in one story. Theologian Wayne Grudeman says this about the Trinity, a fairly simple statement, complex but simple. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. God is one. That cleared up for you? <laughs> yeah, so we're not talking about three different gods here. There's one God, but God is compromised of three individual persons. And again, we're talking in a lot of abstracts, but we actually have this phenomenon all over the place. Let me give you um, one that you may have experienced as soon as today. This idea comes from St. Augustine, a, another late church father. He says this about the Trinity, trying to describe it. He says, there are three things. He who loves, he who is loved, and the love itself. Now, you cannot experience true love unless you have all three of those components at play. And if you take one out, then love in some capacity is deleted. Even if the one receiving love is you, there's something has to receive love. So all three are distinct from each other. They all operate on their own, but they are also dependent on the unity of all three. The expression of love and many other things gives us a metaphor to what we're talking about on a far grander, far more divine scale. And that's why we shouldn't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. 
Like it is a tool, as Tracy talked about last week. It is a person, it is an entity, it is necessary, just as much as the Father the Creator and Jesus the representation in flesh. But still haven't answered that question. What does the Holy Spirit do though? We can keep it cloudy about what it is, what he is, but what does he do? How does he operate? And in a word, everything. Everything. God, everything that God is doing on the earth today, he is doing by his spirit. People will interpret it differently. People will understand it. People will misinterpret it, Christians and non-Christians alike. But the way God is operating and moving in the world, he is doing it by his spirit. He's not doing it in the flesh through the person named Jesus. He's not doing it with a booming voice or with prophets. He's doing it by his spirit. His spirit is moving. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the active presence of God. So when God works a miracle in the world, it's worked through the power of his spirit. When somebody gets saved, gives their life to God, is transformed, it's done by the power of the Spirit. A church that does not have the Holy Spirit present does not have the presence of God with them. Let me try to bring this to a, something we can actually grasp in our day-to-day. -day. I'm actually going to explain this idea that something that I don't necessarily see can permeate every aspect of my life, from how I live, to what I think, to what I stand for, to how I operate and live my life. I can actually do it in one picture. And it's this picture right here. The spirit of this building conjures up a lot. Admiration, doubt, pride, disagreement. The power of this building permeates my daily decisions, the trajectory of my life. It impacts my household, how I run my household, my own integrity. Some days I align neatly with the spirit of this building. Other days I stand in stark contrast to its ideologies or practicality of it. And in a far more profound way, far more meaningful way, the Spirit of God moves and influences and permeates every part of the world. If we believe that God created the world, then we should also believe that he is operating in it, that he has power to move through it. And just as Jesus said, apart from me, you can actually do nothing. You may think you can do things. By the world's standards, it sure looks like you can do things. But Jesus says you actually, don't, you actually are not accomplishing things. You're actually running in circles equally by the, without the Spirit, we can do nothing. 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, in a sermon he said called The Unknown God. I like that name. <laughs> it takes a lot of pressure off my back. The Unknown God. He says this, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. As an offering without the sacrificial lamb, 
we are unaccepted. Jesus truly believed in the power of the Spirit. He says it's to your advantage that it goes. And he's not just leaving us with like this Jesus-sized hole in our life. In fact, he says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And that helper will be with you forever. Now that word, another there, in the Greek, what Jesus was saying when he said another, it literally means another of the same kind. So the Holy Spirit isn't a different helper than Jesus. He is another helper like Jesus. The Holy Spirit carries on the active ministry of Jesus in the earth today, only he's not secluded to an ancient world across the water. He is present in this room, in multiple variations, in our community, in our lives, in our families. He is present, and this idea of Jesus and the Spirit being in line and like each other actually gives us a really good guide of how we discern what is of the Spirit and what is not. And that's how I want to kind of land this plane, is give you some dangers that the church faces when it comes to the Spirit, right? And it comes with that simple acronym that we have, WWJD. What, in fact, would Jesus do? Does Jesus operate in the spirit like this or does he not? Do I have examples of this or do I not? And that guideline can actually help us understand how is the spirit operating. So let's first talk about the dangers, two dangers I think the church faces when it comes to the spirit. Danger one is sensationalize the work of the spirit. That is danger number one. And danger number two is to institutionalize the work of the church. I think we're at risk of both of these things. So let me clarify, to sensationalize the work of the Spirit is to emphasize, like we talked about, my experience over Scripture. And what this ends up being is a lot of times our worship becomes more of a theatrical show of harnessing the power and the feeling of God and representing it to you in a way that I don't mean to be crass and I don't mean to be degrading. The example, the very clear example of this that I have is what you might think of when you think of televangelists. Whenever there's crowds of people in the audience and they kind of wave their hand over a section, they all fall down. And over here, they'll wave their hand over another section and they'll fall down. And the magnificent of that moment is it seems like a person has harnessed the power of God and is leashing it, unleashing it onto the crowd. And in fact, that's the problem. It doesn't seem to actually accomplish anything for the kingdom, simply puts on a good show and puffs up a guy who is actually able to harness the power and discredits the people who are not able to harness it. But here is where we bring our guideline. This isn't about what Peyton thinks. This isn't about what you think. It's not about what you've even experienced. It's about what the scripture, what examples do we have? At least as far as I know, Jesus never did anything like that, that specific example. Everything Jesus did, every miracle he performed, every sign and wonder he did, which by the way, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
was for the purpose of advancing the gospel message to bring God's kingdom on earth for us today. Jesus never seemed to be sensationalizing the power of God or to make a show of it. In fact, Jesus often operated the exact opposite. You'll see examples, and our young adult group are starting to see this when we're working verse by verse through Jesus' ministry, is that he'll do something and pretty remarkable, and then he'll tell them, don't tell anybody. My time has not yet come. It is not just keep this one to yourself. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Jesus seems to be far more serious at gospel advancing, about transforming one person at a time. He set free demon-possessed, he healed the sick, he comforted broken hearts, but he didn't make a show of any of it. In fact, the places where Jesus did seemingly have a crowd, one of them is making water to wine. And the John, we read this in our young adult study, John specifically says that was performed so that his disciples would believe. And very few people actually witnessed it. And then the other time, whenever he fed thousands of people out of just a few loaves, what does Jesus do right after that? He excludes himself to a mountainside to hide and to pray and to be with God. In fact, the disciples come to him and say, hey, another crowd is starting to gather. Are you going to do the same thing? But Jesus seemed to have known the heart of people that they would, they would come back wanting to see a show, wanting to witness his power, and wanting to utilize it to their advantage. Be it, I need comfort. Be it, I'm hungry. You have power, and I want access to it. But Jesus never seemed to sensationalize the Spirit's working. But here's the other extreme, is to institutionalize the work of the church. Now, we talked a lot about sensationalizing, but if we're honest, I don't think our church is at risk of sensationalizing the works of the Holy Spirit. In fact, my tendency A big temptation of mine is the other one. My heart leans towards institutionalizing something. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. To institutionalize the church is to reduce Christianity and the experience of knowing God to things that you can do and things that you can organize. To institutionalize the church is to reduce Christianity down to a system of beliefs and all of the responses that flow from that system of beliefs. But the truth is, your faith should not be limited to what happens inside of these church walls. We have to live out our belief in the vast coloration and variations and complexities that is in our lives, we live out our faith every single day. Now, I'm not saying that Orthodox Christianity doesn't have value. Having a system of beliefs like faith and repentance and salvation, all of these are crucial, but Christianity, according to Scripture, is way more than that. Like, we need the gospel, but we need more than the gospel. We need the Bible, but we need more than the Bible. 
We need good preaching, but we need more than good preaching. We need to live out our faith every single day, but we need to do more than live out our faith every single day. What could we possibly need? Jesus says you need the Holy Spirit. Stay where you are. Don't do anything. You're not ready. Like we can inform somebody all day with all the right words about Jesus, but it's only the Holy Spirit that transforms their heart. We can preach the gospel and do it as clear as possible, but only the Spirit can take someone who is spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. We can shine the light of the gospel, but only the Spirit can open people's eyes and reveal them to the glory of God. We can, with the right skills, we can bring in a crowd. But it's only the Spirit and by the Spirit that we can bring them into the fold of Christ's church. And that's why Jesus took the best trained, the best taught, the most motivated believers in all of history, trained by Jesus in the flesh, witnessed his resurrection in the flesh, and he said, you're not ready yet. Don't go anywhere. You will accomplish nothing out there. Wait for the power of the Spirit, and then, and only then, will I send you out into the world. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go, because I'm sending a helper. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Now, we can quench the Spirit, and this is our warning. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, meaning you can, as a church, And if we want to live out what we see in the book of Acts of the Spirit moving in the growth of my own life and my relationships and the church and the world and the community, then we have to tap into what does it mean to receive the Spirit? What does it mean to operate on a daily basis? That's what we'll talk about next week. But for now, whatever background you come from, Whichever direction your heart leans, I want to ask you that we all come to God's word with open hearts, with open minds, that we hear what Jesus and God's word has to say about the spirit. We let it guide our experience, not the other way around. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask God that you pour out your spirit on the Vero Beach Church of Christ in a fresh and a powerful way. God, we pray that we will live our lives with expectation, with faith to see the Spirit's good working in our lives and our church. God, we ask for you to give us fresh boldness to be witnesses for Jesus everywhere that we go. God, we commit. We commit ourselves as your body has been placed at this time in history, at this street address with these people, We commit to altering our experience to fit Scripture rather than altering our understanding of Scripture to fit our experience. God, we don't come to the Holy Spirit with knowledge and expectation like we can own it and control it. God, we come to the the person of the Spirit to seek to understand Him, to welcome Him into this building, into our worship, in our community, into our lives. We don't seek to know. We seek to have faith. Give us faith. Give us faith that the Spirit is here, that he is present, that he will do things in me and through me that 
I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible without the Spirit in my life. God, help me have that kind of dependence as I live my day to day. And God, we look forward to next week where we can move this into a far more practical day-to-day basis. How can we welcome the Spirit, utilize the Spirit, train and test ourselves to be aware of the Spirit, and to impact the lives around us through the Spirit? God, it's by that Spirit, in the name of Jesus, by the power of God, we offer you this prayer. Amen.